Growth Pains. Hey everyone, welcome to this new episode of Growth Pains. Today, my guest and I will be talking about topics such as overreacting too quickly to problems, putting work over personal life, dealing with cancer at critical times for your business, building the right team, and finding focus when you're trying to grow multiple products at the same time. My guest is Patrick Campbell. He has a background in econometrics and math, working as an intelligent analyst for the United States. Uh, the way he put it, hunting bad guys with data models, and then move over to Google to start hunting money with data models, which I thought it was a, an interesting thing. And then he's the founder and CEO of ProfitWell, which now has about 20 to 25% of the entire subscription market in their data. And he puts a lot of high quality content that's really smart out there. So my goal today is to make him seem a little bit less smart so we can all feel better about ourselves. So welcome, Patrick. How are you today? I'm doing well. So yeah, based on that introduction, it's going to be a really light day, a light topic day here for this podcast. <laughs> no, no, no. We're going to keep it, we're going to keep it uh, mellow. Don't worry about it, right? But just to like do it. break the ice, what I tried to do initially is to, I tried to do like a little bit of a true or false. Some of these are meant to make you uncomfortable or to contradict yourself later on, but let me see how well I can achieve Ooh. that. <laughs> let's so, do it. Let's go with the first one. So most people embrace a data-driven mindset when they agree with what the data shows them, but when the opposite happens, they start questioning it. True or false? 100% true. Uh, it's the backfire effect. So that's, that's exactly, exactly true. Okay, okay, we'll touch upon that one later. On, my, on the last two, I have a couple of like, topics that I feel like that. Uh, most marketers that claim to be data-driven do not really understand the fundamentals of, statis of statistics that well. True or false? A hundred percent true, hundred percent true. <laughs> have, you, have you come across some atrocities on that one? Because I'm one of those, right? I, like, oh, I know some basic math, I did engineering in, in college, but it's never been like my natural thing like i can i can pass the test right if i study but it's not the way yeah, I'm, I'm wired no, that's okay but that's yeah to me it's more um how do i put it it's more of you, you don't need a background in statistics to be successful by any means and you don't need to know the fundamentals but you have to know the the the, the most basics and the limits of your understanding or the limits of your data and, and what I find is a lot of people and, and I just find this because I, I deal in a lot of data and our products are data products is that um, a lot of people like to give you an example uh, our pricing product is very very data driven we collect a bunch of data around pricing for brands and then we present those to brands yeah. uh, and give recommendations right well a lot of times people will ask well what's the sample size on that what's the n on that and that's a really good indication of someone who doesn't understand statistical significance, not because it's a bad question, but because really statistical significance is measured, uh, it's a measure of variance, right? It's a yeah. measure of, you know, the, the, the greater, you know, the greater picture. And so um, you'll have people where you'll say, oh, the sample size is 230. And they'll say, well, is that really enough? Is that not enough? And then like you try to explain this to them and they're like, well, no, I think 300 better, right? And there's no basis for that, right? Yeah. And that's not everyone, but I also think the other thing to kind of not go too far on here is because uh, I know we have lots to talk about is a lot of marketers they think they should be data driven and I don't think you should be data driven I think you should be data informed because data is never perfect you're never going to have enough data there's going to be some really strong data sometimes and some really weak data other times and it's your job as a marketer to take all of those inputs and then make a decision uh, so yeah that's my that's my little soapbox on, all right on that true or false love that one this one is uh one that i'm really curious to see what your thought is uh, quantitative data is more powerful than qualitative data when it comes to decision making Ugh. i'm probably gonna have to say false you didn't say always no no, no. maybe you did i did yeah I don't think it's i don't think that's always the case i think that there's just some things in marketing growth etc that you know, you have to you have to make longer term decisions on it, yeah. and you don't have enough data on those longer term decisions. Or there's just more nebulous things like I don't think you should ever um, choose your branding based on data, like in terms of your brand assets. Maybe Absolutely. your brand voice and stuff like that. You'll collect data, but your color, logo, and stuff. I think that's a little more, a little less data, a little more qualitative. All right, and the last two I actually stole from one of your talks, but I just want the audience to listen to them because it's going to make my argument later. Uh, founders with hobbies who score high on work-life balance have slower-growing companies. True or false? Yeah, so that is true. 
Uh, it is not the whole story, though. I guess okay. people going going back to the backfire effect that you mentioned in the first one. Um, we just saw this in the data, and it's it's a pretty strong correlation. We tested for um, you know kind of uh, dual variables. We did a bunch of different things. And we just found that people who are kind of all in or don't have big hobbies, and hobbies are not, I got a lot of crap for this when I posted it on social. It's not a child. You're gonna get some crap family. about it from me right now. Yeah, yeah, that's why I put them in there. I know, that's great. <laughs> no, but like it's in the data. Now, what I meant though is it's not the full story. Yeah. Uh, we didn't measure, are they happier? We didn't measure, are they more fulfilled? We didn't measure, do they have higher divorce rates? We didn't test anything like that. We just looked at the two variables. And so, while it may be true, growth isn't necessarily everything, um, you know, and I know we're on a, a Growth Pains podcast, so that, that should hopefully fit in. And the last one, it's about remote work. So remote companies also have considerably worse growth uh, and retention than co-located ones. Is that true or false? This is also true based on the data. Um, and this is also one where, so you're kind of going through what I, what I do in some talks where yeah. I ask people to react to things And, you know, some of the first things are really easy to react positively to because you agree with them. And then this one, you know, there's a lot of religious remote people out there. Um, but again, this isn't the full story. Um, yeah. It doesn't say, you know, it doesn't say happiness. It doesn't look at, you know, the, the ability to hire. It doesn't look at these types of things. And, you know, in defense of the data, uh, this, this is less, this basically becomes non-existent once you reach um, 80 million in annual revenue, this difference between remote and uh -huh. located. Not a lot of 80 million plus remote companies, but every company's kind of remote at that point, multi-office, these types of things. Uh, but it is under 10 million in revenue, first getting started in those first, first years. Um, it, it is a, a 20% drop for those remote companies, at least right now. And yeah. I have theories as to why that is, but uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's what the data says. Nah, the reason I added those last two from your talk is because essentially those trigger that effect on me right away. Right, I'm like a massive advocate of like yeah. work-life balance, be happy, uh, remote work, fantastic. Everybody should be remote. And then these ones right away are like, oh, he must not be using the right data here. Like there, there must be something off. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. So those you agree with that, some data, and then other. I just data don't like, like. I just don't like what it says. <laughs> yeah, I just don't like what it says. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, like yeah, this yeah. one, I was like, what the fuck is Patrick talking about on this one? Like, it didn't make yeah, any yeah, sense yeah. to me. So that's why I wanted to add them. So also the first question I ask a lot of people in this podcast is. I want to start by something that you believe that you are really, really bad at when it comes to work. What is like one thing that you could pick up that it's mm. that you think you suck at, essentially? Oh my word! Uh, so many things. It's hard to pick one, and it's also you know what's really funny about a question like this is that as a as a founder, or I would argue as like a, just a driven person in general. Yeah, it's hard to kind of keep keep in mind these things because you either mitigate them by like hiring someone else to do it or not doing those tasks anymore, or you work on them and then forget that you're bad at them. And yeah. so, um, yeah. or we're bad at them. And so I think that right now something I'm really bad at. Um, the latest one, but I've actually solved it in the past like month and a half, um, was. I was, for years, like years, way too in the weeds and way too in the critical path of um, a lot of teams. Um, and this was a function of being a bootstrap company. This yeah. was a function of me not trusting and not hiring the right people in certain roles. This was a function of a bunch of different things, all of which are explainable, but sometimes when you're in your first couple of years, you don't feel it um, because you know, you're just like, well, if this doesn't get, if I don't do it, it's not gonna get done, right? Um, and then what I would do is I was in this reactionary hole where I wasn't able to get proactive enough. And so all of a sudden it was like every day was kind of frantic. Yeah. And I did that for years because it was like, oh, so-and-so needs this. Let's get on the phone. So-and-so needs that. Or I'll get that in two hours the other day. And then recently I just said, no meetings before two. Nothing. Um, It's a really good changed, one. changed everything. Um, but I'm trying to think of something that's good. I think I am... It's funny because I'm on the tail end of a development cycle. So this is like some really bad dead air. I'm just gonna think I'm <laughs> I don't think I have problems. Because it's no, like I do this. Uh, the thing is, I, I ask this, you, like, 
Yeah, but I ask you this one on the spot, but I also have quite a list, right? So of, of things that I kind of think you might be bad at because of your talks and, and things you've said in the past. <laughs> so no worries. Uh, nobody's going to think you're perfect through this one. Uh, so That's good. No, I would say here's, here's the thing I'm bad at. I am bad at empathizing on small wins. Um, I am terrible at it. I yeah. don't think I'm ever going to be good at it. I am like someone pointed this out the other day and I thankfully like someone tried to change me and it's not that I don't recognize that small wins are, are good. It's just, I'm, I'm the type of person where we're, you know, we launched this, one of our largest customers uh, this week and yeah. like, I didn't sell it. I didn't, I was like, cool, what's next? Right. Right. Like, cool. What's next? What's the next thing? And that rubs people the wrong way. But thankfully we know this. And now one of my uh, business partners, he's the small win guy, which sometimes causes friction between <laughs> us, but yeah, I'm never going to be good at that. Okay. Cool, man. So the next one, let's, let's, this is a good segue into our first topic or our first pain of the day. I think one of the things that I was really interesting of hearing you talking in other talks that you've been doing is that you have this whole process or this whole like uh, rationalized version of what happens when you freak out, right? So when a business randomly freaks yeah. out uh, into certain issues and they overreact and way too quickly, Perfectly right. So basically, mm -hmm. uh, you call this a freakout cycle of executive emotion, if I got that correctly. Yep. And then you yeah. say that these situations lead you to a place that you call the reverberation of fuck, which I love as a concept. <laughs> so, uh, can you explain a little You've bit of this research. one? Yeah. Can you explain a little bit of this one to the audience? Totally. So, this was basically my own journey of lowering my anxiety and my temper even. Yeah. Um, and what I mean by that is I think that no matter if your company's bootstrapped or customer or, or venture funded, it's hard. It's hard. Everything's hard, you know, because it, it, it's maybe not difficult. Maybe it's not like you're doing rocket science, but you just have so much surface area of things you have to improve and get better at and just do in general that, that it's really, really hard work. And I think that What ends up happening is if something bad happens, and it doesn't matter if it's a big thing, small thing, whatever, a lot of us just assume that thing's important. And we get into these reactionary cycles where we're just like, this thing's important. Yeah. Um, and so we drop everything, we focus on it. And when that happens, even if it's really small, because we're in this reactionary cycle, we, we get into like the reverberation of fuck, which is everything's bad, everything's <laughs> terrible, we're going to fail, all these other things. And then that affects you. And Unfortunately, that leads you to just guess and check, I would say, to, to solving the problem. And you don't really think through like how you should solve the problem or how you should prevent it from happening. You guess and check, and then normally you kind of fly off the handle sometimes. Or other people, they may, maybe won't you know, get upset or something like that, but they'll do it all internally, and their days will be ruined, and these types of things. Yeah. We all react to these things differently. But for me personally, I would, I would just get, you know, wear my, my heart on my sleeve. And I would never really like yell, but I would just be like, you know, maybe way too direct. And that would cause us to solve the problem. But then that person's upset with me, you know, rightfully so, because maybe I was too curt or I was rude or I didn't handle it correctly. Or I was like, why, why is this like this? This shouldn't be like this, you know, which of course they know that, but that doesn't help when I say that. Exactly. No, nah, but what, what's interesting is that in, in startup world, we also tend to like uh, normalize this kind of behavior, right? It's like, hey, deal with it. You're in a startup. So we just freak out about everything. We just run around trying to fix anything. Uh, and yeah. you don't respect your, your, your planning. You don't respect your sprints. If there's a typo on the website, everybody put your computers down. We have to fix that right, right Everyone away. Everyone stop. Everybody fix stop it. and yeah, does yeah, right yeah. away. But what, what, what draw me to this topic is that Uh, you have always seemed to me, and you clearly are, a very data-driven person, right? So the fact that you also go through these freakouts speaks really loud for how we're just wired, right? How you can be a very rational, yeah. data-driven person, but then you see that typo in that page that has two visitors a month, and you're still like, holy shit, we need to stop everything and fix this, right? So does that still happen to you? Is this something that you've been getting better at, or is it something that just shoots off of you whenever it gets a chance? Yeah, I've, I have gotten, like, I've become a whole new human, um, is the best way I would say it with this type of stuff. And I think that the, it, it took a lot of introspection. And I think that for a lot of folks, we don't do that work of, like, fixing ourselves and, and you know, taking what we call, at least internally, the most charitable interpretation of what's happening, 
right? So what I would notice in, in kind of the, the worst the, the worst of these days was, um, you know, I would I would just make assumptions about what happened. I would, um, you know, take what that person said and not even listen to them because I just like assumed what was happening. Like, and none of this was conscious. Like, I, I don't I didn't wake up and was like, oh, I should I should be rude or I should, yeah. you know, like get into an argument. It was always very like. And my internal emotions were very much the reverberation of fuck because it was, okay, if we can't figure out a typo on the website, it doesn't matter that there's two people who visited. If we can't figure out a number on the website, what else is wrong? What am I not seeing, right? And I think for me, that was hard being a first-time founder and going through that because, you know, there is the weight of the quote-unquote world is, is a bit on your shoulders, right? Um, and some people don't, they're, they're never going to feel as intense about the business as you. And I think that that's okay, but sometimes you don't feel like it's okay. Right. And in those days you don't feel that now, what's really helped me is, um, just evolving. And I can't say that it perfectly happened over the last year. I think it happened over six years where I just incrementally was getting better. And I think I've really noticed in the past year, um, I've reached a bit of a, a Zen with these types of things. And a good data point is our CPO and I, um, we are, you know, I, I like to joke, like, 40% of us, like, hate each other. Like, 40% of each of us just hate each other. Don't agree with each other's political views. Don't agree, like, with things like that. The other 60% deeply loves the other person. And when you have the, that type of relationship, it can be volatile sometimes. But, yeah. you know, we haven't had an argument. Uh, we've had a lot of arguments, but more discussions. We haven't had, like, a volatile anything for a year and people are like amazed that that's that that's what's happened. And really, it came from this concept of the most charitable interpretation, which is when someone says something to you, you should assume that they are smart. You should assume that they may be right, and you should listen to them. Now, at the end of the conversation, you might realize, oh, they're an idiot, or oh, like they they have bad intentions, or they're wrong, but you at least listen to them and you seek to understand. It gives you like a second to not like, you know, make your mind go in a certain place. And I think that that's actually, to me, it was it was a downside of being so econ, so statistics, so data focused is that your brain goes to the nth degree. It goes to the seventh move beyond what happened and you're already upset about it. When in reality, you should sit there and be like, okay, I have to understand what happened for the first move here. I have to really understand before I go to the second, third, fourth move of what happened. Um, and then the other thing I think was just, um, you know, stop accepting certain things. I think we were accepting some people who were just kind of mediocre or not good at their jobs. And so we were just kind of rushing in and doing their jobs. And that caused a lot of resentment, a lot of frustration that probably wasn't fair to that person because you know, we just, we underhired or we didn't set the right expectations and those types of things. But I think that's helped when, when you can get the right mindset, you don't get upset. You don't, you don't, you know, yell, you don't argue, you don't do any of these things because you're just like, oh, it's just a discussion. And this person, you know, has good intentions, even yeah. if they might be wrong. Well, but also as a CEO and founder, you're, you're probably much more involved on, well, not only the marketing, but on the content side of things, you're super involved, right? So you're very involved yeah. in, in all the public image of the, of the business and you're very involved in the nitty gritty from the newsletters to all the videos you guys put out and so on. Um, do you think that has made you a bit more prone to that, right? Because usually uh, what, what, what is very common in the startup world is that CEO will try to like do everybody's jobs. And you just said that sometimes you underhired mm. and so on. Do you feel like that's entirely a hiring issue? So when you fix that, you are able to fully delegate freely or do you still feel like I could have write, written that blog post better, right? Or I could have done that on the website um, better. Yeah, it's interesting. Because, because um, you're always going to feel like that, right? But you cannot clone yourself to like have 10 Patricks yeah, running around yeah. fixing everything. I'm, I'm trying. That's my <laughs> side project. No. Um, I, think that, I think there's two things there. I think you have to think about you know, comparative advantage, opportunity cost, right? So, you know, I, yes, I probably could, you know, in some cases, write a blog post better than some of our other writers, right? But not every blog post needs to be the best, right? The way we think about some of our content... Um, and this has evolved a lot, so it's not been like 100% true always, but you know, there's, there's SEO content that needs to be over a threshold. Yeah. It doesn't need to be the best thing we've ever done, but it just needs to be over a threshold. And then there's like, you know, now we have two other types of content. One is focused on spread, um, and that is not supposed to involve the media team um, as, as little as humanly possible. And then we have upscale content, and this is like a new thing where it's like 
we're taking some of our shows and, and really upscaling them, you know, graphically and, and you know, quality wise. So, but that's not an answer to your question. To answer your question, <laughs> I think that um, one realizing where to call your shot in terms of where you should jump in. So now, you know, putting up some like clear barriers of I cannot be involved with this, or yeah. I am I can't jump in. And, and this was something that you know even my business partners and I had to learn allowed us to realize where there were holes. Oh, this person actually can't write or this person can't do sales, right? Because we keep coming in and saving them and that's why, and that, that sucks for them because they didn't realize that and they think everything's fine and then you let them go yeah. because you finally realize it and it's it's terrible because it's, it's a surprise. They think they were doing okay. Um, and so it's realizing those things. The other thing, the other aspect of this is I think that um, hiring is, is really complicated. You are trying to, in a very short amount of time, get yeah. enough signal to let you know that you're going to find the right person. And sometimes you don't know who you're actually looking for, yep. which is a huge waste of time for everybody. So we've had plenty of things where we're like, we think it's this, but we didn't put enough time into it. And then we hire someone and we're like, oh, the role is actually this, right? And so I think that to me, if I were to do it all over again, one thing that would have helped with this, and, and I don't know if this would have solved all of the problems because I think that, again, Building a company's hard. There's a lot of hard things. So you have to get really good at like harnessing and using your emotions, almost like emotional jujitsu. Yeah. Which if you don't have reps, you don't you don't, it doesn't work. So I don't think this would have solved it, but I think what I would have done is put a harder emphasis on just really phenomenal people, even if they weren't skilled people. Meaning, you know, one attributes of our, yeah, over lucky. attributes over uh, skills, essentially. Yeah, at least in the early days, because we don't know what we're doing and yeah. we thought we did and things changed. Because then, like those people, like the people who are really successful here, they're the ones when we change the goalposts on them, as they say, they rose to the occasion because yeah. they, you know, they were like, cool, I can just, you know, we could put them anywhere and they would be successful. Um, and then we got really good about specialists, like figuring out, okay, we need the specialist, let's scope it down, let's get the job description, let's get the KPIs, and then go and hire that person. Um, but yeah, but this I think is it's, it's it's a journey. This is a really good segue with uh, my next uh, pain that I had in, in, in mind, right? Which was building the right team, right? Essentially, you guys have mm. grown. I think you are around 80 people now at ProfitWell. Yeah, yeah, about 70. About 70, yep. 70 plus people. Um, and yeah, I agree with you. I think like hiring, you can get better at it over time. But as you say, how long do you spend with somebody before doing an offer? I don't know, like four hours tops like, or something before you have to put yeah, an offer much. on. It's really, really hard. And, and everybody, let's face it, when you go in an interview, you're in your best smile, you're in your best everything, right? So you're not your average you when you're having a shitty day, getting off the bus to, yeah. to go to work, right? So it's very difficult. Um, you, might ha you must have made some mistakes uh, on the early days when it came to hiring. Is there any like particular mistakes that like daunt on you and you always comes yeah. back to you when you're hiring new people? Yeah, we, we definitely, we've made some mistakes. Um, so we've, we've made, uh, so we've made the classic mistakes of under hiring. I think that's, unless you've done this before, I think that's a really easy mistake. To yeah. Make. You've like, got low budget you know, during this, a rush. Yeah. Yeah. When I'm, when I was working at the government, I was working at Google. I mean, I wasn't really involved when I was at NSA working on hiring because I was so new, but at Google, I got involved a little bit and you just have this giant machine that's like yeah. figured things out and they're really just hiring, you know, the best of the best in terms of like, you know, a bunch of Ivy league kids that made me feel insecure because I was the only non Ivy kid, you know, selling ads. Right. Which is not, you know, rocket science. Right. So, yeah. um, But when you're starting a company, it's like it's hard to figure that out. Now, the other big mistakes we've made, um, I think we we had a situation where um, we were finally trying to find leadership, and we didn't do enough time thinking about okay, we we're all leading company, but like what makes a new director of whatever really good, right? For this role, this role, whatever the the function is inside the business, and we found someone who is phenomenally skilled oriented. Um, you know, this person from a skills perspective was fantastic. Um, but from a culture perspective was awful. Um, just absolutely terrible. Um, you know, and, and I think it's because they came from much larger companies and then coming to like a 60, 70 person company at the time. Yeah. Um, there's a huge difference between there and th they were awful in very volatile ways. And then there were subtle things like politicking and stuff like that. And I think that 
it was that's when we kind of changed some of our, our hiring practices a lot because we were like, well, you know, this this was you know unfortunately a very large you know problem, um, but you know we could we could at least um, you know try to fix some of the interviews so that we could check for some of these things besides just skills or besides just the basic attributes. Um, and we've you know I don't think we've cracked senior hiring. Um, I think we've gotten lucky with a couple of people and we're yeah. really good at developing people from junior to senior. We've been really good at that, which I probably would rather take that over the other. But now that we're heading into this next phase of the company, we got to get really good at hiring directors, VPs, et cetera, which, you know, we're, we're still flexing that muscle. And we've kind of put that on hold through COVID just because we're an in-person company, um, as, as you and I kind of joked about already. Yeah. And so we, we want to kind of make sure we do that right. Not that we couldn't hire them remotely. It's just more of a... Um, we're, we're, we're fixing other problems first. Yeah, but you mentioned also the balance between like skills and and attributes, right? Or just qualities or values. Yeah. Um, for upper management, that even it's more important, right? Would you feel that in a higher level manager, you would prefer somebody with the complete right values instead of the, instead of focusing so much on the, on the skill set? Or would you, go 50 50 um, what's what's your preference there for a, for a higher manager yeah so let's let's say there's three levels right there's skills uh which is like do they know how to run an adwords camp like that kind of thing if we're yeah. a big ad you know they, they've run a demand gen team before or something like that there's uh attributes like they're really smart they're really conscientious like some you know superpowers that they have that are, are, are transferable and then let's say there's culture right So our culture, we were a big, you know, the most charitable interpretation that I explained, that's a big thing for us. So, yeah. you know, and we treat everyone like adults, which I know is sounds very like simple, but it's actually, you know, a lot of businesses don't treat people like adults. You know, they, yep. they infantilize them in a lot of ways. Um, and so there's there, there's some things like, and then we have a big thing of feedback is non-negotiable and people think like, oh yeah, I want feedback. That's great in the interview process. And then they come in and they're like, it's a hose of feedback. Um, and the way you receive feedback is very negotiable, but, um, and it's not all negative. It's just a lot of feedback. Oh, this doesn't look right. Or that doesn't, or, Hey, what do you think about that? Like just lots of that. And they're not used to it. So we got those three, three levers. I think that, um, I think for upper level management, you, I would probably skate a little bit more towards attributes as well as, um, values yeah. like culture. Because if you think about a CMO, like he or she should not be running the same playbook that he or she ran at the last company. Um, unless it's a picture perfect match, which sometimes it is, she or she should be evaluating it. That's more of an attribute thing. Can he or she think through the problem and then based on that, come up with some good solutions of what we should leverage and what we shouldn't. Um, but I do think that the skills are super, super important because if we're running a content team and you've never done content before, you're very demand gen focused, you probably shouldn't work here, right? Um, and it's not that demand gen's bad, it's just we don't do as much of it, like it's not as, as much of a focus. And maybe it will be in the future, but that's why I think it, it you can't have, you know, I don't think you can over-index on, you know, one of those categories and not the others because, you know, this is what's troubling about hiring an exec is it's yeah. really, really hard to find good people. And this is why I think a lot of people, they hire the first few people that they see, which is definitely a mistake we've made rather than, you know, focusing on, you know, waiting and being okay to wait yeah, to yeah, find yeah. that right person. The, the, you said earlier as well that you guys are really good at, like, people, growing, growing people internally, right? And, and I think that's really interesting. But when you have a small company, it's also pretty quick to hit the roof, right? So you have, uh, you go, for, you start yeah. in as a, as a junior marketer, whatever, you go minier, all of a sudden you're the head of marketing of a four-people team, three-people team, and that's your roof right there. Right. So do you guys also have this culture of like the only way forward, not being a manager and also having like a good separation between individual contributors and people managers, as in there will be people that need to have a continuous growth path, even though we don't see them as people managers ever. But the people tend to think that being a manager, it's like the only way up. Right. Do you guys have a yeah. path that's separated for specialists and individual contributors to feel like they keep yeah. growing? Yeah. Every, we, we fight this so much, this mindset. Uh, yeah, well, it's, it's the standard, right? Like you feel like if I want to make no, X money, I have to be a CMO. There's so many, there's so many people who 
they they start. We, I got a funny story. I'm not going to say his name because I think he'll be embarrassed a little bit. But <laughs> um, probably the best, the luckiest we've ever, the luckiest thing that ever happened to us at this company is this this individual came in as a marketing intern, um, and didn't know how to write well at all or anything like that. But just was like really gritty, like very high on those attributes. And I think when you're junior, like it's really the attributes because you don't have any skills, right? And he's now one of our principal engineers. Um, and he, we, we put a lot of time and a lot of like learning and we taught him how to code like our CPO did and a bunch of other things. And so there, there was a lot of effort put in there, but he also like learned a lot on his own. But what's interesting is he, he was like, oh, I want to be a manager. I want to try to manage. And we're like, no, you don't. <laughs> like, no, you don't. Yeah, it's a different um, game. You right? know, and then... Yeah, we, we gave we gave him we, we hired a couple interns that reported to him and you know interns I think are really good for first time managers because interns are heavy management. Um, yeah. Everyone thinks oh yeah it'll just be easy cheap work no no it's not and we pay our interns you know market rates anyways but um, he came out of that and was like I don't want to manage for a while I got to work on other stuff so I think long story short we kind of fight against that but yes every role at the company has a management path. And then an individual contributor path, yeah. um, and they are you know equal kind of pay, um, and you know the skill set for a really rock star, you know engineer. I hate to use that phrase. I shouldn't have said that, but uh, the engineer for a really really good engineer um, is is not the same skill set for a really really good manager, and vice versa. And so, yeah, um, I think that's a big mistake. A lot that we haven't made, and a lot of companies make is they're just like, oh, you're really good at your job. You should be really good at managing. And it's just never the case. And the, the intern bonanza, has that also been a mistake you've made in the past? Like, I've also been in high-growth companies when they just got massive investment or, or so. And the, the quick thing is to just grow the team quicker, get more hands on deck, and then you end up with having, like, 30% of your team is just interns. And as you say, it feels like they're going to help you. Very often, they are more work than they are help because, of course, they're learning. That's what they're there for. And we've all been there some at some point. Yeah. Have you guys, like, gone, like, hey, let's just get... Uh, ten people in for the salary of one, intern them out, and 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 uh, and see how that works. Or, or you haven't fell in that trap. I made, I made this mistake in the first three months of the company, and we have not made the mistake since. So, <laughs> it was just me for the, the first three months of the company. It was just me and seven interns. Yeah, there and you go. That's the one I'm talking about. It was really bad. Yeah, yeah, it was really bad. Now, it like. Since it's what you then, had, right? We definitely it's hired. what you had as well. You... Yeah, no, it was what we had, and it was, but it, it did not net out. Like, it was not great. But I also was nervous to hire anyone, like, full-time because we didn't raise any money. It was just me in a room, and, and I cashed in my 401k, and, and that was it. Um, and it wasn't that much money. It was literally enough for me to live on ramen, you know, for six months. So <laughs> um, I think that was uh, that was the big thing. And, and, and but But I will say that since then, we we've gotten to a point where we look for outstanding interns that we would hire, right? Yeah. And we would, you know, either try to, we've had a couple who have quit school. Um, we don't try to convince them. We, we are very like, we're not going to try to like argue with you. There is an opportunity. Here's the opportunity. We are more than happy to talk about it, but we don't want to convince you to quit school. And we've had some who have been interns multiple times and then we end up hiring. So yeah, that's kind of what we try to look for. Right now, we kind of shut down the intern program um, just because we were, were again, we're adjusting to remote ourselves because we were not a remote company, and we didn't want to add the extra level of complexity of, of onboarding an intern. Um, so, yeah. But if I get this correctly, you guys have a team in Argentina, right? Yeah. How many people are there in Argentina right now? So... And it's mostly Rosario, engineers, right? Yeah, it's mostly engineers. Um, I think it's about 15 right now, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, we're probably going to get to around 20, 25 by the end of the year, depending on, you know, because we, you know, we still, it, it's it's interesting because we're, uh, between you and me, uh, we are, and, and anyone listening. Nobody's going to listen um, to us. We, yeah, 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 that's right. We're trying to figure out, um, 
like scaling and office space and all this stuff has like thrown all that stuff into into a loop. But yeah, we have a team in Argentina. How was that? How did that come to be? Because well, I'm from Chile, so I'm just next door to those guys. Oh, cool. And um, how did that come to be? Because it's it's an odd location, right? Like I would have said, if you go to Argentina, yeah, Rosario, to Buenos Aires, or whatever, but you went to Rosario. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how did that come to be? Was it like so, a first hire that you said this guy's fantastic? Let's make let him grow his team over there. Or how did that come to be? Um, more or less, yeah. I mean, the real impetus was it for it was we're in Boston and HubSpot's paying entry level, no experience uh, developers yep. like 125 a year. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you know, we lost someone we were really excited about, and it was one of those things where like, there's like, yes, we can get them on the dream, and, but like a, a kid out of school, and, and we typically don't hire like entry level engineers, uh, but we hire um, you know more senior. Um, because we're willing to pay more for senior, but we don't want to pay more for entry level, if that makes sense. Yeah, so, absolutely. Um, what we what we ended up doing was uh, Facundo, my uh, business partner, he ended up um, knowing this guy. That's where he's from. He's from Rosario. He's oh, been in the okay. States for gotcha. two, de- two decades. But he was like, oh, I know this guy, friend of a friend. Um, he's kind of like, a, he's, he's pretty senior, like really talented. Like, why don't we just try this, right? Like, why don't we just try it? And I was like, okay. And then it, it started with, Okay, well, he's hired two people, um, so we had three folks down there. Um, he, they were using um, extra space in his, his, his wife's office. And then all of a sudden, we got hooked up with, so that's where the technical university is um, in yeah. Argentina. So you got a lot of the talent. Um, basically, yeah. well, all of a sudden, like, th- again, it's like they don't want to work for, one, there's not a lot of, like, things, tech companies there to work nope. for, even though the tech university is there. There's some big companies, but it's like they're, you know, they treat them like an offshore shop, basically, rather than treating them as like, you know, well, I shouldn't say that, but <laughs> like they weren't treated as like fully fledged team members, um, or at least that was my impression. It's probably not the truth. But so all of a sudden, one of the professors there was like, do you, do you want to pay me a little bit? And I'll just refer you a bunch of people. And we're like, sure. And so all of a sudden, we just have this like constant, you know, flow of, of you know, interviews, which is really great. Um, and we, we were on a path of just hiring like one to two a month for a while now. So it's been you know, it's been a good time so far. Ah, that's really cool. That's really cool. So one of the other yeah. things that I think you're like, this is easy to guess, right? You're everywhere. So if when I put on LinkedIn, you're there. When I look at YouTube, you're there. You're in my inbox like every two minutes. Uh, so you are very busy. I know some of this stuff is automated. <laughs> I not every two minutes. I'm, I'm yeah, not that yeah, stupid. Yeah. I know some of this stuff is automated, but uh, you're really, really busy dude. Um, and you've been vocal about putting for parts of your life, I don't know if that's still the case, like your personal life pretty much on the background and dedicating yourself fully to being a founder and to being in profit well. Um, looking back a little bit on the last years, is there any regrets there? Is this a decision that you feel you're happy with or is it a decision that you feel like, holy shit, I should have done something different? Um, yeah, well, I want to qualify what you said because it's, it's not that it's wrong. It's just more like I, I'm a big believer that there is no, I, I don't think work-life balance is real. Mm-hmm. Like I understand why we talk about it and I understand like for some folks a hundred percent like work-life balance is super important. Like, especially if you're, you know, in a blue collar job and you know, there's, there's a lot of not problems, but there's a lot of other factors. Like, and so I want to be super clear. I'm talking about like us working yeah, yeah, yeah. in tech. We're very blessed that we can work in tech. We're very blessed. We can kind of work from anywhere. We're very blessed in the type of work we get to do using our minds versus, you know, digging ditches all day. Right. So that's a first qualifier because like, you know, every time I talk about this, someone's like, yeah, but what about the person working in a factory? I'm like, we're not talking about them right now. Like, and so um, the other, other qualifier there is like, I really believe that I don't think that's the best way to be successful. Um, We put so much of our hearts, minds, and souls into companies, whether we're, you know, a a junior engineer or the founder of the company that I, I think they blend. And I think you need to figure out how you best work. Um, Some people, they have weeks where they're just, you know, 15 hour days, but they're by choice, not because some deadline. And then the next week they need to like take, take most of it off. Right. And I think that should be okay because that's the best way they work. They like to get on these sprints. And for me, what it really took realizing, and this is kind of my, my personal thing is my job is my identity. It's the, it's like the number one thing in my identity. It didn't matter when I was working at Google. It didn't matter when I was working here. Um, working for the government. It's part of the reason I didn't want to work for the government anymore was because I like talking about my job and when we're working in U.S. intelligence. You can't talk about your job. Um, 
but yeah, it's, it's, it's my identity. And so if it's my identity, why should I, at least personally, and anyone who's like me, have to apologize for my work being a major part of my life and sometimes parts of my personal life or sometimes the things that you or someone else yeah. may think, oh, these are, these are things that should be important to you. Why should I apologize for you know, deprioritizing some of those things, right? So I don't think, like, when I, when I talk about this, like, I have um, a partner, Jenny. She is the, one of the best things that's ever happened to me. We've been together now five years. But she gets it. And she gets that, like, you know, between these hours on Monday through Friday, You're gone. like, you know, I'm gone, but on the weekends, it's all her, right? You know, that, that kind of thing. And do you manage to? Do you manage to she... commit to that? Or are you on the weekend still like running algorithms and going mad scientist? Well, it depends. No, it depends on the week, right? So it's so on the weekend, like if she's, she's been working on this big project yeah. um, and um, so she's been away on the weekends and stuff. So yeah, I'll do some work, but I also then know that I need some time off. So I'll read a lot or I'll do something, yeah. right? And that's how I recharge. Um, and it'll be, you know, it might be tangentially related to the business, but I think that we would do much better in the world if we stopped judging others for how they work yeah. or judging others for the choices that they've made. Um, now, there are plenty of people who, you know, they like, like, and I think that dissonance is where we get in trouble. So there's the, you know, I call them $30,000 millionaires who are the, you know, people, influencers, you know, oh, I'm crushing it. Everything's amazing. Yeah. Um, and they're only working 15 hours a week and they're like, why am I not a millionaire? And it's like, uh, there's very few companies that, you know, have been able to get to that level. Um, and it's okay to, you know, I, I, I talk about this with a lot of team members. I'm like, listen, there's multiple paths, right? So the white picket fence, that whole path working 40 hours a week, you can work here. That's totally fine at Profwell. That's absolutely okay. That's what I was going to um, ask. Yeah. And it shouldn't be, you shouldn't be uh, apologetic about it. Now, there are going to be people who are, you know, the people who are, you know, either with their mind or with their time, like grinding. And yeah, those people might be rewarded in different ways. Maybe they work on, you know, more interesting projects and it's not like kind of a, a standard role for lack of a better phrase, but those are the trade-offs and you should be okay with that. Now, if you only want to work 35 hours a week, you want the white picket fence, you want to, you know, have events you go to every single night. I don't know if you're going to be a VP. Like, I just don't know, but that should be okay. Exactly. Like, it's really hard to have it all. Um, and I think that people are like, feel like they're entitled to have it all. And I just don't think that's, that's the right way to think about it. I was going to ask you, like, how does that leak into your team, right? Because like, I, I think we were talking about later, earlier about the facts of like, you know, businesses doing better when their founders are fully all in and have like no hobbies, no nothing. Uh, but how does, yeah. how does this look in the team? Like, do you deal well with the, what, the fact that you were just mentioning, right? That not everybody is going to be as invested and as all in as you are as a founder. Yeah, it's never gonna happen. Like, it's never gonna happen. Are you realistic like founder, about that, or do a founder you... should be the person? Yeah, 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 yeah. So I think that just a couple of comments. Like a founder, a founder. Like, it took me a little while to realize this, but it didn't take that long. I I'm never going to like. No one is ever going to be more invested in this company than I am. And this is part of the reason I'm a founder. Because when I was working at other companies, and I was, you know, a again, a young punk kid who his job was his identity for a lot of reasons. Um, I always cared more than my boss, or at least I felt like I did. Right. And it might not have been true, but that's how it always felt. And so now I'm like, you know, running the company and there are certainly people who care just as much as me and Facundo and Peter, I would argue, and maybe some other people at the company if we really thought about it. But I can't expect that, you know, the kid out of school who has no idea what he or she wants to do and, you know, wants to like their X, Y or Z is super important in their life, their religion, their volunteering, all these other things. I can't expect them to, to be at the same level yeah. and that's okay. And so what we've done is I, I always, anyone who reports to me, you know, I always have a conversation with them and I'm like, Hey, you're going to receive emails from me at, you know, I wake up every day at 4am. You're going to receive female emails from me at 4:30. I, I don't expect you to answer right away. Like I don't expect, and now it's, you know, we hire the right type of people. I think that everyone's very like strongly, you know, willed in certain ways, not everyone, but a lot of people in like, I don't even need to tell them this, right? Yeah, but hold on, uh, hold there on. There are some folks who are more. But you you wake up at four a.m. Shit, man! Like, what? Please, please don't tell me you go running five k before you do statistics work because I'm gonna I'm gonna <laughs> feel like I'm, I'm gonna, feel, I'm gonna no. feel like shit about myself. What What do you do at four a.m.? No, no, no. So here's the thing I discovered. Just as a little tangent, um, I think you get to discover like your schedule. What What schedule makes you the happiest or the most fulfilled? I would argue, and I think you as an individual control your happiness. I think myself as a boss, I always say this to the team, like, 
hey, we're, we're here to make you fulfilled. We're here to give you really hard things that you want to work on and are really excited to work on. Um, and you will control your happiness. And if you're unhappy about something, like talk about it. Like let's, let's figure it out so that we can help you, set you up, those types of things. Now, 4 a.m., I, I discovered the time of day and the work schedule I have that makes me happiest. Mm -hmm. I really, really like when I have a few hours either before the work day or a few hours at the work day um, or both sometimes where I am kind of uninterrupted. No one's around. Yeah, that type I get that one. I, it just, it, it, it like, it feels like I started my day and it feels like things are good, yeah. right? Um, if I come in at nine and everything's kind of going and I already got 17 slacks and all these other things, I feel like I can't plan my day because I feel like I have to react, right? And this goes back to, yeah. you know, the reactive kind of cycle that I was trying to break out of. But I also, I mean, um, normally what I do is, is, you know, I get up, shower, all that kind of fun stuff. And then, um, you know, on, on certain days, like Saturday and Sunday, I do this Saturday and Sunday as well. Um, I'll read, I'll kind of get some stuff done. Maybe I'll go to the gym when it's, once it opens at around 5.30, that type of stuff. But I, during the week, I normally go right to the office and I work. And then by normally, depending on a norm, what type of day it is, and I have certain types of days, um, normally by like 1 p.m., I'll go to the gym and that kind of resets uh, okay. the rest of my day. Um, and then the afternoon is a lot of meetings and stuff like that, which I'm kind of like calibrated for. So yeah, and then I go home, I chill for a few hours, depending on what the night is. And I, I typically go to bed around eight or nine depending on, on the day all right you've also you've also come across and have gone through some pretty heavy health issues as well you're a cancer survivor if i don't get this uh wrong three times was it twice Tw yeah, uh, yeah, twice. Yeah, twice twice i mean technically i mean if you ask the true uh oncologist it's probably once because uh the way they measure this is five years remission and okay basically i i had i got cancer you know at, at four years and, and nine months um Different type, but you know, I don't know. That's that's for them to decide. It's all semantic, but yeah, two two times, and everything's good now. Um, I'm in. I'm in officially in remission, um, which is good, and everything's great. But also, at one point, you you mentioned this happened at a pretty like pivotal point for ProfitWell, right? You were like two years in the Terrible business, time to like horrific yeah. timing, right? That would have been a time for me, dude, where I would have been like, "Fuck this! I'm just gonna go and enjoy my life and." I guess this is not for me, I'll just next one, right? You would have outlived it and then yeah. you would have regretted it probably. But uh, didn't that cross your mind? Didn't just like, what the hell am I doing about this um, pricing thing? Fuck it, I'm going to go live somewhere and in the beach and just enjoy life. Yeah. Well, again, my work's my identity, right? So yeah. it's a little hard, but I think, no, it's a good question. So it's... The first time I got cancer, I was at Google, which if you're ever going to get sick... Best place yeah. to get sick. Amazing. Good place. Um, I, I never saw a, a bill. It's not that I didn't have to pay for anything. I never saw a bill, which was kind of insane. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. So, um, so for, for a little bit of context, like I, I am from South America. You're from North America. For the Europeans listening, yeah. which is the majority of this, uh, of this podcast, that doesn't make any sense. But yes. I know. It's, yeah, a, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a very big thing to appreciate. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure they've seen the healthcare debate yeah. at some point with the U.S. in the past, you yeah. know, five, ten years. But anyways... So it was amazing. My manager was like, "Hey, like I, I had, I had a manager I didn't appreciate. Best, best manager I ever had, but I didn't realize it until I started managing people. But um, basically, I, he was like, "Hey, you can just go, like you can just like leave for as long as this takes. We'll pay you at 100 percent, all that kind of stuff. Don't worry about your commissions, Alex. I will take care of you." And I was like, "No, like no, like no." And then this is honestly, it's from a place of this originally, and now it, I've, I've learned to like harness this emotion better. It was from a place of like probably self-hate, insecurity, etc. Like, no, this isn't going to beat me. This isn't going to take me. Go fuck yourself. Like this type of thing. Like I had my best quarter ever um, that quarter while I was like going well, through yeah. treatment and surgery. And the, and the first time around, it was like two rounds of chemo or two like six, six to eight week rounds of chemo plus surgery, all that kind of stuff. Um, so it was, it was pretty bad. Like, and it was, it was a lot and I was definitely pushing it. Um, and I think that here's what I realized during that time. And this is maybe helpful and, and it might be wisdom. So you might have to experience, hopefully you don't have to experience something as, as crazy, but you might have to experience it to really get it is you learn that death is inevitable and that you're not a superhero. And I know that that's so obvious, but when you're young, 
let's say under 40. Yeah. Yes, there are little things that creep up in the 30s and stuff like that. But when you're young, you, you don't feel like you can fly, but you feel like, oh, I'm fine. I got 30 years. Not to me, years. right? This shit's happened to other people. Yeah, I got, I got time, but I also got time, yeah. right? Like, I got time, right? And what this did is it was a good slap in the face of like, maybe you don't. Maybe you don't have time, right? And I was very thankful or I was very blessed that, you know, it was early stage and really good prognosis and all that kind of stuff. But it was one of those things where I... I I don't fear death anymore. And I know that's a really weird concept. Like, and I'm sure that if I was, you know, hanging off of a, you know, a building or something like that, yeah. you know, I would probably fear death. But I mean, like, I don't fear death as a concept. Um, but I also realize that this is going to end. And if this is going to end, I want to like go out in the right way. And that's why, like, I was like, I'm going to go work for myself. Like I'm, if I'm going to bust my ass and I'm going to care more yeah. or at least perceive to care more, I'm, I want to make it so that, success or failures on me and that's a very naive way to think but it evolved over time so that the second time i had it um thankfully it was again very early and they wouldn't have detected it for another six months they estimated if i wasn't getting regular checks mm -hmm. um but and i just had to go through radiation which is bad but not as bad because it's kind of and this is going to be too simple but it's kind of like an x-ray machine pointed at you for you know 45 minutes to an hour yeah. um uh, but like five six times a week uh, so long story short, I think that when this happened with the company, I had the benefit of like, no, this is what I should be doing. This is what I should be doing. I want to push this forward. Um, I'm going to go to my treatment, going to make sure I go to the office and do my thing. Um, and also, you know, be, be a strong face for the team because people just naturally worry about people that they even remotely care about, um, with this type of stuff. So yeah, long story short, it was, it was, it was one of those things where it was more like, I got to go. Um, and I got to, you know, if this is the last thing I'm going to do, I'm going to be proud of the last thing I do because I'm doing the thing that I like well, but um, and I love. And what's interesting is that I, I also got this from one of your talks as well when I, I thought it was really insightful is that as you have gone through the talk, like you mentioned a, a few times, like it's okay as long as you're being honest to what you want to do. Right. And very often yeah. what you hear is that people say, well, I want to be the next Jeff Bezos or whatever the hell it is. And that has some sort of action that is required to get there. And if you're not willing to put it in, then you're not going to get there. And it's totally okay to not want to get there, but to be consistent with yourself and say, hey, I actually just want to be, you know, the marketing manager of a nice company and live my life there and be happy. And that's all I want. And your actions will be consistent with that. Right. So just about like finding what you really want. Most people don't really act as where they say they want to get to. Right. Most people say they want to, no, I, I want to get to a, but I definitely don't act like I want to get to a, right. So, and this like time clock ticking gave you kind of like put you on your feet and, and got you there. And you also mentioned how you created these documents in the company called if I die docs, right. Which I guess, do, yeah. you, do, do you still do those at the company today? Uh, <laughs> we don't call them that anymore. Uh, no, one. if I die docs are basically, um, I mean, that really helped the operational piece of the business. Now, it came from, like, a very macabre, like, uh, perspective, but it, it actually is, uh, you know, it, it's a good thing that all companies end up doing. It, it basically is, like, what we tell people is, hey, make sure that you're documenting what you're doing. And yeah. Make sure that you have, like, we sometimes call it a command center or, you know, hey, like, a document that if you got hit by a bus, you know, God forbid, like, people would be able to, like, pick up on, you know, what's going on. Um And, and, you know, with a short, within a short amount of time, take over, you know, whatever you were doing. Um, and it's just like, as you grow, like, I think that becomes just so much more important. And you don't really think about document, like, people either love documentation and appreciate it, or they like begrudgingly do it. But you don't realize how important it is until you start growing. Because all of a sudden, you're like, why didn't so and so do this thing? Oh, they didn't know. Why didn't they know? Well, That didn't get passed down in the oral history of training what we normally do. Yeah, um, it is one of those that, things though that, that starts happens. really like everybody's on it, and you're like, hey, let's document everything, and it kind of wears out over time, and then a few people join, and you kind of lose that kind of like tempo. Do you, did you manage to like keep that up? Is, is it still a priority that profit well can be consistent about documenting what people do, easier to onboard new people, and so on, or is that something that fluctuates? Uh, um, no, it's, it's, we, we have a good culture of writing, I would say. Yeah. So we kind of do the Amazon style of like any big initiatives should have a memo. Um, 
you know, and if we're going to talk about the, the initiative, we, we all read the memo first and then talk about it kind of a thing. Because writing yeah. has, has the ability to kind of crystallize your thinking. Um, and so, and then there will be people who will be like, well, I don't know this. And you try to explain it to them. Um, like they'll ask you some, some question and you try to explain it to them and they just don't get it. And sometimes what you'll do is you'll say, okay, why don't you write what you're looking for? Yeah. Give me the template of what you're looking for. Cause then it helps. I think sometimes people ask those questions. They don't listen to you because they have this vision of exactly what they want. And so sometimes putting it on them, um, is super helpful. I think for, for us, it's, it's anytime there's a lot of questions or something going on, um, myself, Akuna, or Peter will start writing memos. And then we have other people who um, write memos or who are um, you know, working on figuring that out for other things because you know, we want this central repo and we use Notion for, for all of this, which you know, makes it super useful. All right, the, the one we wanted to address also like one of your business pains from ProfitWell, right? And one of those that you mentioned was that uh, you're trying to grow four products essentially at, at, at the same time. You guys have four products. Well, one of them is free, yeah. which is your metrics product. And then you have your retained product, your recognized for revenue recognition product and your price intelligently product. Um, and when I had Rand on the show, Rand Fishkin on the first episode, he mentioned as one of his like most biggest regrets, like trying to divest from the SEO product too early. Right, so he has this really strong SEO product, and then he's like, "Hey, we need to acquire a follower wonk, acquire this or the other, do a bunch of other side projects that he would think would complement the SEO uh, product." And at the end, it was for their detriment. Right, they, they started losing focus. They started yeah. not shipping as quickly as they were doing. I can imagine that, given all the data that you have, right, from the subscription market, this temptation is really hard to resist. Because you go around your data and you're like, shit, this could be a new product. Shit, I, I only me yeah. have this. I so should launch times. this today because nobody else has it. So today, not next year. Don't, are you not scared a little bit on going on the route that you divest your attention too much and then you start like growing everything, uh, nothing instead of everything? Or do, have you taken measures yeah. and you're very aware of this? So we're very aware of it. Yeah. Uh, because if you think about That's it, first step. it it affects a lot of things. Yeah. So just imagine us doing a redesign of our website. What does our homepage look like? Like what is, I don't even know, right? Like how do we describe ourselves, right? In sales conversations, right? Um, so we're very aware of it. So here's, here's, here's the reason. We discovered very early on um, that the, we serve subscription companies and we discovered the subscription market from a logo perspective like meaning the number of companies out there, it's not actually that large. It's about 100, 150,000 on the high end. Yeah. Um, and that if, that's if you include SaaS, subscription e-commerce, subscription media, subscription nonprofit, all across the board. And so when you have a market, and, and then half of those aren't good leads, right? Like they're just gonna be bad for a whole host of reasons, and then maybe the other half you're gonna have to pare down. And so we have tens of thousands of potential customers, right? So when you have that situation, the path to a billion, and, and we wanna be a, billion plus dollar company um, in terms of revenue mm -hmm. is not just valuation is multi-product so multi-product um, or excuse me it's high LTV which means multi-product likely or um, higher price points for the products that you you sell right so with that vision we knew and we started looking at multi-product and we were like hmm well most people don't do this to a hundred million they don't do it until they're hundred million because it's hard enough doing one and the market's big enough and all these yeah. other things. And then they'll come out with the other one when they'll spend like 10 million to produce that next product, right? Well, we know that getting to 100 million is actually going to be quite difficult if we only focus on one. But we also know that if we, don't, if we focus on more than one, it gets super complicated, right? So this is a, a rather unconventional thing. Um, and the problem with unconventional things is a convention turns out to be right more often than not. Yep. That we've tried to focus on, which is, all right, no one's cracked at to figure out how to do this in a scalable way. A lot of times they just establish a GM for something and then they do another thing and then they do another thing and it just gets really complicated. Instead, what we're going to do is we're going to kind of bake this into our DNA early and we're going to struggle. It's going to take a little bit while longer to develop some of these products. It's going to take a little bit while longer to develop the marketing for these products. But we know we need to do this in order to get to that longer term vision that we're going after. So we're willing to take kind of a hit. Now, how do we kind of prevent um, some problems that like Rand talked about? I think for us, it's we look at the critical like first principle of things, which is, okay, we can't focus on everything. Not everything's gonna be a priority. So some of these products, we are going to be 
so comically narrow with who we target. Yeah. And we're going to be so comically narrow with how we target them. We only talk to them if they come inbound for one or two of our products. No, it's really one of our products. We're only going to talk to them inbound and we're not going to necessarily take on anyone who has these characteristics, even if they come to us, right? So that's kind of how you like prioritize certain things. And we'll get to it, but only when this is starting to go, then we'll figure out what is the trigger for each new product where once the other product gets here, we're going to have this like SEAL team from the engineering side start working on that one, right? And from a go-to-market side, it really comes down to making sure that we have the right go-to-market teams figured out for certain products before we move on to opening up a go-to-market team for the next product. Yeah. But it also means that we're not going to just create four companies underneath one company where they just share HR or something like that. It's going to be something that we're going to have to you know, figure out some more novel ways to kind of target this. Well, it's interesting because you've also experienced some of these pains, right? Like in, initially, and I, 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 I don't know if you got, if I got this right, because to be honest, I briefly met you in 2016 when you were here in Amsterdam uh, doing some work with the guys from, from the TNW and, and I was uh, doing a project there. Um, and at the time you were coming in some sort of as a consultant from Price Intelligently, right? So for me, you were Patrick from Price Intelligently for like five years. And I would always say like Patrick for, 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 yeah. for Price Intelligently, Patrick for Price Intelligently. And you guys did some rebranding on which you called yourself ProfitWell, which used to be your product, if I got this correctly. And then Price Intelligently become, became one of the ProfitWell products, which is your pricing optimization product, right? Um, to get that difference to me, which is a guy that has you in my inbox like often, right? I just realized this before the interview. Right, so I was like, so what the hell is going on with Patrick and Price Intelligently? I was like, okay, profit well, and yeah. then profit well is nested here, blah, blah, blah. So as you were saying, right, like as you go to your, through your page right now, and you go in like with a white canvas, the more offering you have, the more confusing it is for the consumer, the more you get like, wow, so yeah. should I get this, should I get the other? Um, do you feel like you are combating that right now, or do you still get a lot of people coming to you and be like, oh, yeah, I got it differently? Uh, because of you know the changes that have been happening in the last years. So, two axes there. Yeah. One, coming to us because uh, of the change over the years. That's one that we we handle a lot initially, and now it's like tapering more and more. Right. Like, and we're probably going to handle that for <laughs> another five years. Yeah. Right. I think I think the one the one we worry about more because that just that just happens with name changes and. The best advice I got with name changes is like, just don't do it, yep. <laughs> but we had to do it. And so, um, a lot of the advice was like, don't, it's not going to be a single email. It's going to be like thousands of conversations with people. Yeah. Oh, I thought this was probably, oh no, 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 here's the difference, you know, and just like arming people, like be able to explain it. The one we're more concerned about is the classic, they come to the website and they're like, what do they do? Yeah. Um, and what we've kind of realized, and this is not, I'm not saying this isn't a problem. It's definitely a problem and we're, we're going to keep iterating on solving it. But what, what we're okay with underneath this problem are the people who come to us for a specific thing through word of mouth or content and then don't realize we have other stuff. Right. And I think that that's, that's a, there's, a, there's a thread there that we're pulling on that I think is actually okay for multi-product companies, which is, hey... Um, they come to us for metrics because someone recommended, oh, you should use profitable. They come to us for retain. Oh, you should use retain. You should use retain. Um, and with that, they get on one of the products or they get one of the, they, they get on something. And then we have different loops that will remind them or show them other things. Or there's stuff in the app. They're like, oh, I didn't know they had this. That's really cool. Or they're on a phone with a salesperson who can then kind of explain everything, yeah. right? And so we're, we're kind of okay with that. But this is also why... Um, for multiple reasons, we have a heavy content marketing engine. Because if we just have outbound sales, then it gets a little bit tougher, right? We still have outbound sales, but it's one of those things where I'm all about bringing you into the sphere of ProfitWell, right? Through content, through a product, et cetera. And then that buys me time to show you everything else. And maybe I don't wanna show you everything else because you're just not a good target fit for it. Yeah. You're not an accounting person or a finance person, I don't wanna show you recognized. Yeah. Um, you know, those types of things. So. It's something we're still pulling on. We have not solved it yet, and it's but it's something we're well aware of. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's difficult, man. And I and I think um, 
even even when you have more savvy SaaS people or whatever, the way we go through pages and the way we read today, it's just really quickly scanning them. And if it doesn't make sense, you just kind of give up, right? And, and your products are to an extent yeah. already complicated products. Like you have to, to put a little bit of thought into understanding what they are. But okay, man, we've are- My goal is- Yeah, go ahead. My goal is basically that no one goes to the homepage. And yeah. I mean that sincerely. Yeah, you want and it to go straight to each happen. product, right? Yeah. But no, yeah, and that's that's kind of how we think about it, at least for initially, is like we're always going to have people go to our homepage, we're going to iterate on how to do that. Um, and Atlassian, I think, does it actually a fairly decent job. It's like a really obvious job, but it's a good job. But the goal is is that we're, we get so good that people go to the page immediately from wherever they are without needing to, uh, needing to uh, go to the homepage. Yeah, okay, man. We're running a little bit out of time and, and you have other stuff to do later on your day. My day is ending, but you're still, still going. Uh, we wrap it up with a, a little bit of a tips. So if you have some resources that you would like to share, they can be your own as well. We've recommended some of yours in the past as well. Books, podcasts, whatever there is. Is there anything you would like to share with the audience? Um, I'll do one shameless plug and then one not so shameless, <laughs> one that's uh, not profit well. So the one book I'd recommend reading, um, High Output Management by Andy Grove. Uh, I think if you're, once you start scaling um, beyond just like the initial couple of people, it's a really, really good book on learning how to work with teams, how to think about workflow, all that kind of stuff. I read it about twice a year. Um, and then the shameless, you know, kind of plug. Um, we have a lot of content at ProfitWell. Yep. Um, so feel free to check that out. Um, a couple of highlights. We wrote a book on pricing. We wrote a book on churn reduction. And then we also publish um, a subscription index, which is basically you can get a B2B version or a consumer version where you can actually look at on a daily basis or a weekly, if you subscribe weekly, um, how the market's moving. Um, and we publish that data um, pretty consistently. And also, I'm Patrick at Profitable.com. If you have any questions on anything, more than happy to follow up. Um, it may take me a second to get back to you, but I get back to everyone eventually. Yeah, I'll, get, I'll share a couple. I think uh, The Objectivity Trap is a new report published by Rory Sutherland from Ogilvy. He published it uh, just last week. And it's really good for those people that see the world as more than data, which is me. So it's, it, 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 it's really interesting to get a little bit of, a, of an idea of you know, how our minds work way beyond data. And the, it really shines some hope into the people that are a bit less data intense, like myself. And the other one is factfulness, I think is not a business book per se, but I think that if you struggle like wrapping your head around data and putting it into context, it's from Hans uh, Rosling. He's a Swedish doctor that passed away in 2016. Um, it's a really good one to show all the biases we have around data. I think in so many businesses, uh, true mathematicians are not there and we're just stuck with shed mathematicians, including myself. And we make such bullshit claims constantly with our biases, right? And we just assume they're correct because we put a number in front of them. Uh, completely taken out of context, completely biased. So if you struggle with that or you have some shit mathematicians in your company that you want to call bullshit on, that's a good one to, to read about our biases. All right, man. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I had to chase you around a little bit, but I'm happy that you were here. I'm a big fan of your work. And uh, all the best Thanks, for you moving forward. Awesome, brother. Be well. Have a good one. Ciao, ciao.